like we've been saying, we have an exciting service planned for today. Again, at the end of the service, we'll witness a baptism and also admitting some new members into the church. But first, we're going to continue on with these Q&A sermons. And real quick, in case you haven't been with us the past few weeks, just uh, a few weeks ago, we finally finished going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. It's been a really good time going through that on Sunday mornings. And you can now find all those sermons on the website. So that is now complete. That's pretty special. Pretty soon we'll be moving on to study yet another book of the Bible, verse by verse. But before we do that, this little gap affords us some time to cover some other issues. And one thing I like to do with that gap is some Q&A sermons. I find that all Christians, pretty much, of all maturity levels, have questions, lots of questions about the faith, and don't always get an opportunity to ask those questions and get some answers. And it's good also to ask and answer those questions together, because chances are someone has the same question as you, maybe just too scared to ask. So that's what we're up to this morning. We started last Sunday with some of your questions that you submitted over the past month, and we'll be continuing with answering your questions today. It's not your typical sermon, but hopefully still helpful as you grow in your knowledge of, of the word and, and of the truth. So without further ado, no special introduction other than that needed. We're just going to jump right in and see how many we can get through today. Start off with a somber but still very important question. It's going to get pretty serious pretty fast, but question number one, when a believer commits suicide, how do we understand this? What do we make of a, when a believer commits suicide? That's a good a fair question. What this person is basically asking is, can true believers commit suicide? And if so, how? Or does the act of suicide serve as some like final proof that a person was never saved because they failed to persevere until the end? Basically, can someone kill themselves and still go to heaven? It's, it's not a fun thing to discuss. And sadly, it's all too common a question today because suicide is a very prevalent problem in our country and in our world. But it needs to be discussed. It's a still a good question. Let's begin this discussion and frame this discussion with just some observations about suicide. Why do people commit suicide? Well, generally speaking, because they lose all hope, meaning, and purpose in life. And so they take the easy way out, no more reason to live. Sadly, I get the impression that a lot of people today commit suicide. They do so from that that they've embraced that evolutionary worldview that where you die, it's just it's nothing, you fade to black, you return to dust. And for people who are really suffering in this life, be it physically or mentally, they see that fade to nothingness as a sweet escape from the troubles of this life. Even though we know this is sad and wrong and tragic, we at least can understand how a non-believer who doesn't believe in, in God or heaven or hell, who has no hope, we can understand how they would think that suicide is okay. What's more troubling, though, or confusing to some is when a professing Christian thinks suicide is okay. That's because we as Christians, we're supposed to have a lot of hope and purpose, and that should keep someone from suicide, you would think. Well, is suicide okay? Well, let's continue by giving just some basic teaching on suicide from the Bible, because it, it actually does talk about it. Now, there's no command in the Bible which says, thou shalt not commit suicide. It doesn't need to be a command like that, because... The prohibition of suicide falls under the prohibition of murder. Suicide, after all, is really nothing more than self-murder. And in that regard, it's a grave sin. Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. The penalty in the law, Leviticus 24, verse 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Even before the law, way back after the flood, this is a fundamental command of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. 
Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And that's really the issue. Every human is made in the image of God. So every human life, doesn't matter what stage of life, is valuable, is precious in God's sight. None is to be taken lightly, none is to be taken out. Furthermore, God is the creator and the judge, and you don't have the right to choose to end someone's life. That's up to God. And yes, this includes yourself. You might say, well, it, like, it's my life, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. And says who? Not the Bible. The Bible says your life is not your own, your body is not your own. It, it's God's, it's created in his image for his glory, for his purposes. This is doubly true if you're a Christian, because then you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And we can add here that in Scripture, suicide is never presented as a godly example to be followed. It's always depicted as the sad end to people caught up in their sin, living life in rebellion against God. So in 1 Samuel chapter 31, King Saul falls on his own sword as a final act of desperation to avoid being humiliated in death. In 2 Samuel 17, Ahithophel hangs himself because he's been shamed and no longer the counselor to the king. In 1 Kings 16, Zimri burns down the king's house on himself, basically saying, you're not going to get me alive and you won't get my house either. And then, of course, Matthew 27, Acts chapter 1, you have the suicide of Judas Iscariot. and gives the ultimate example of false discipleship, and that extends to the end of his life. In rejecting God and Christ and failing to repent, he was without any hope. And so he chose to end his life in despair. He therefore serves to show that a similar hopelessness results and awaits all those who reject God and Christ until the end. But we still haven't really answered the question as to whether or not it's possible for a true believer to commit suicide but still go to heaven. Well, the answer to that question actually comes from last week's Q&A. We, we technically answered that question. Last time someone asked this question, can a true believer commit the serious sins, like the big sins, like murder and adultery, and yet still be saved, still go to heaven? I spent, I think, about 30 minutes really hashing that question out. I'll give you the long version. So if you want the long version to the answer to the question, go download last week's sermon. You'll get the long version. But can we really just add suicide to that list of serious sins and just go with our answer from last week? Yes, we can. Now, I'll still give you the short version here in case you weren't here. The, the, the short version, is it possible for a true believer to commit really serious sins and yet still be saved, still go to heaven, even like suicide? The short answer is yes, it, it is possible. Your deeds don't save you and your deeds don't unsave you. The deciding factor is not a person's deeds, but the genuineness of their faith in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. Because we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law. And thankfully, God's grace is greater than all of our sins. All of our sins. Now, your deeds do play a big role in revealing the genuineness of your faith or lack thereof. That's where they come into play. Like Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. So you have a person who claims Jesus by name, but lives like a total unbeliever with no change, no evidence of new birth, no fruit, living in unrepentant sin. Scripture makes pretty clear that such a person is likely 
not born again. They still need the gospel. And Jesus himself said there would be many such false disciples. Not a few. He said many would be in that category. Now you take all this, you apply it to suicide like we did last week with murder and adultery. Suicide is just one act. It is not by itself some unpardonable sin or some mortal sin. Even though it is a serious sin, the sin of suicide can be covered and forgiven by Christ's blood. Now that being said, the, the sad news is typically, just by way of observation, you probably have seen the same thing. Most people who do commit suicide are doing so because they've already turned away from the Lord in their hearts, sadly. Their suicide comes because they have lost faith in God, they've lost hope in Christ, and they've got nothing else to live for, for those at least once claiming to be Christians. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And sadly for many, suicide represents their last act in falling away from the faith. But don't think that's always the case. It's not. It is still possible that a person had genuine faith. They were truly saved. They bore fruit. They were real. But they went through a season of darkness in their life, being spiritually mature in that moment of ultimate weakness they chose to end their own lives. It is still possible for such a person to be saved because, again, in the end, the deciding factor is simply the genuineness of their faith in Christ. And speaking of that, that's something that only God really knows. So don't take away from this that now it's your job to be like the salvation police to, to go around like it's up to you to decide who's saved, who's not saved. That's not the picture here. In the end, God will judge and you can just trust him to do what is right and true and good and just. Our real concern, though, it's, it's with the living, not the dead. And that concern is to help those who are struggling, especially those who are considering suicide. Whether they're a believer or not, they need the same thing. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ brought to bear on their lives. So when a professing believer commits suicide, will they go to heaven or not? I don't know. I can't see their heart. All we can say is that if a person had a true, genuine faith in Christ, they will be saved because salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes, Scripture does tell us what the life of someone with real faith should look like, but at the end of the day, only God knows a person's heart, and so that's in his hands. What's more important in this discussion, I think, though, is to be more concerned for those who are still living. There are many Believers out there, professing believers out there, struggling with depression. They're losing sight of the hope and the purpose they're supposed to have in Christ. And so you should worry more about ministering to them. Sharing with them that even in the midst of our suffering, God is still good. And that uh, nothing can compare, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And that in Christ we have nothing but hope. Show them Christ who himself suffered that we might have this ultimate eternal hope in God. As you know, the world offers no help and no answers for the one contemplating suicide. Because look, if you're really suffering and the party train has ended, why not just kill yourself and fade to black? Why not? That's all the world can say. But we can tell someone that their life matters. They are precious in God's eyes. They're made in his image. You can tell someone that the second they die, suicide or not, they're going to stand before a perfectly holy and just God and he will judge them for their sin and rebellion. 
But then you can also share this great news that the same God is also perfectly loving. He's already given his son Christ to die in their place to forgive their sins. And that by believing in him as Lord and Savior, they can be forgiven, reconciled to God, granted eternal life. That's good news. And that good news alone is enough to give someone all the hope and the purpose they need in this life. So, I think the real takeaway here, especially if you know anyone contemplating suicide, do not forget the power of the gospel. And be a minister of the power of the gospel. Well, let's move on now. I think we could use a, a change of tone, a bit of a lighter question, a quicker question. Question number two. Does the future temple have to be in the exact location as the original temple? Does it even matter since the sacrificial system is void? Does it have to be made of stone? Could it be like the original tabernacle? So multi-angled question about basically the future temple. What's up with the future temple? Now to this you might be saying, what, what is a future temple? What, what is he even talking about? Well, did you know the Bible actually speaks of seven temples? in God's redemptive history, in the timeline of, of man's history. Seven temples. So I'll give you the, the quick version of that, just so you know. First, you have the tabernacle, built after the Exodus. That was like a portable temple. The first temple was portable, called the tabernacle, that Israel had during their wilderness wanderings and afterward. That was then replaced by the first proper temple, built of solid stone. That was known as Solomon's Temple, because he built it per God's direction. It was a, a stunning, magnificent structure until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Now, years later, after the exile, the Jews came back to the land and they built a third temple in the same spot. So that third temple was in the same spot as Solomon's temple there in Jerusalem. Sometimes it's known as Zerubbabel's temple because he's the one who first built it. Later, it became known as Herod's temple. Probably heard of that, Herod's temple, because he's the one, King Herod, who massively revitalized it and rebuilt it. It had fallen in disrepair. He, he made it so magnificent in the days of Christ and afterward. It, it should rank with the ancient wonders of the world. That was a, an amazing structure, history tells us. And too bad that temple was likewise destroyed by the Romans just seven years after it was finally finished in AD 70. But in God's eyes, though, Herod's temple was replaced long before it was destroyed. After the death of Jesus and the inauguration of the new covenant, the temple and its sacrifices became obsolete. God made a new temple, a fourth temple, technically speaking, by, if we're counting by scripture, namely the church. In this present age, the temple is found in the hearts of believers. That's what the New Testament teaches. Believers making up the body of Christ are the temple indwelt by God's spirit, his presence with us directly. We don't need a building anymore. God is with us where we are through his spirit. And so that's the only temple God recognizes in this age, believers themselves. But this doesn't mean there won't be another temple in God's redemptive plan. There will. In the future, God's word indicates that the Jews will rebuild the temple once again. And by our account, that will be temple number five. This is the temple spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. It's also known as, you could call it, the tribulation temple. Right now, as you know, there is no temple on the temple mound in Jerusalem. The spot is there, and the plans have been laid out. They're ready to build. 
the Jews are. But you know, the Muslims will not let them, of course. It's going to take some sort of miraculous peace in the Middle East for the Jews to ever be able to rebuild that temple on the Temple Mound. For that reason, many believe that it will not be until the reign of the figure known in Scripture as the Antichrist that the temple will finally be rebuilt because one of his first orders of business is to bring peace to the Middle East. Likely, he will be the one who oversees the rebuilding of the temple. He makes a covenant of peace with the Jews at first, but halfway through the seven-year tribulation, he breaks the covenant and he desecrates the temple. So that temple will be there. This temple is eventually destroyed, again, as part of God's judgment on the Antichrist and apostate Israel. So when this person asks a question, that's what this person had in mind. That's the future temple he was asking about. And with this background in mind, we can now answer the original questions here. Does the future temple have to be in the, in the exact location as the original temple? Well, the Bible doesn't say. But pretty much every impression we get is that, yes, it will indeed be in the same location as the original temple, as Solomon's temple. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, tells us for sure it will be in Jerusalem. So almost without a doubt, it's going to be on the same temple mound. The temple mound is still there. The foundation, but the temple is gone. Do the details of this temple really matter since the sacrificial system is void? The answer here is not to God they don't. Though the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will resume by the Jews, it will, they will come without God's blessing. The nation of Israel is still cut off because of their unbelief, and they will remain cut off until they look upon him whom they have pierced and repent and believe. And scripture says that will happen at the end of the tribulation. Does it have to be made of stone? Could it be like the original tabernacle, which is made of cloth pretty much? Again, the Bible actually doesn't say, doesn't tell us anything about the building material of that future temple. So we can't really answer the question. I can tell you this, though, that in Israel today, just look it up online, they have something called the Temple Institute. And they've already made detailed architectural plans of the, they call it the third temple, and they're counting it's temple number three. They have detailed architectural plans. They've already recreated the sacred vessels to be used. They're training Levites today, literally, for the temple. And I think they intend to build the temple out of stone, although I could be wrong in that. But that's about as much as we can say in that regard. Just to round things off, though, I told you there are seven temples in Scripture. And indeed, after the tribulation temple is destroyed, it will be replaced by yet another temple. This is temple number six, technically. You could call this Ezekiel's temple or the millennial temple. For this, you can read Ezekiel 40 through 48 on your own. Learn more about that future temple, which features Messiah himself, Christ returned as the high priest. And finally, a seventh temple is mentioned in the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. In one sense, it says there's no more temple, meaning there's no more little building where you got to go to meet God. But in another sense, the whole place is like the temple. All of New Jerusalem is like the temple where God and man dwell face to face together again. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So God's redemptive history ends with paradise restored, God and man in fellowship together again. All right, well, we're going to move on, shifting gears yet again, 
to, to some of you, I'm sure it'll be a, a bit of an odd question, but nonetheless, still good. Number three, can you clarify the false teaching which says that Christ's death on the cross was not enough, but that he had to die spiritually in hell and be born again? Are there any other surprising heresies we should be aware of? Do they want clarification or just response on this teaching they heard about Jesus? His death on the cross was not enough. He had to die spiritually in hell and then be born again. And I'm sure most of you are thinking, what? what? I, don't even, I haven't even heard that before. Is that even a thing? And is that right? Is that wrong? What, what's up with that? Well, yes, there are some who believe that Christ's death on the cross was not enough. He had to die spiritually in hell as well. In other words, atonement for sins didn't really take place on the cross. It took place after the cross in hell where the spirit of Jesus went after his death. You think, why did the spirit of Jesus go to hell? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says Jesus was made sin. And these people take that as literally as possible. He was literally made into sin and so sent to hell in judgment. In hell... Jesus was totally separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit, they teach, and that he had to be later rescued by the Father, at which point he was born again and resurrected on the third day. And so they love to teach that Jesus was the first man ever to be born again. Now imagine, again, most of you have not heard this. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe you have. Who teaches this? You're probably wondering. Well, this is pretty much a staple teaching of the Word of Faith movement, which is the extreme fringe of the charismatic movement. Some take it further than others. For example, Joyce Meyer teaches that when Jesus went to hell, he was literally held down and pinned down by demons as they were jumping on his back, laughing, saying, we've got him. You can listen to her sermon where she says all that. And somehow she believes that Jesus being trampled by demons, that was him suffering for our sins. He had to literally suffer in hell for us, being trampled underfoot. Similarly, Kenneth Copeland says, quote, Jesus went into hell, there he paid the price, end quote. So atonement, not on the cross, but in hell, they teach. Kenneth Hagin also teaches that an actual separation from God took place, which is why his spirit went to hell. Jesus was literally cut off from God the Father, which is why his spirit needed to be born again. Bill Johnson suggests the same thing when he teaches that, quote, Jesus laid aside his divinity and, quote, emptied himself of divinity, end quote. The most extreme form of this teaching that I found, it's like a spectrum, came from Benny Hinn. He likewise teaches that the Father and the Spirit totally abandoned Jesus on the cross. The body of Jesus went to the grave. His spirit, though, went into hell. However, he went to hell not as divine, but as a man. He says, Jesus, quote, did not face Satan in hell as God. He faced him as a man, end quote. And you heard that right. He teaches that the divinity of Jesus was totally lost and fully set aside when he went to hell, and he went purely as a man. He also teaches that the divinity of Jesus did not return to him until the resurrection, when he became the true son of God. Now, the implication of this teaching in their regard is that from their perspective, if a man, and just a man, destroyed Satan once, faced Satan and destroyed him once, he can do it again. And we are just as much born again as Jesus was. And this ties into their teaching on claiming authority over the devil, so on and so forth. 
So that's like the brief version of this teaching. It's out there. It exists. I'm sure it might be new to you, but you're at least made aware of a teaching out there that exists. Now, what do we make of it? I will likewise give you a you know, relatively brief response as to the many serious errors behind this teaching. First, they get the incarnation wrong. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not lose his divine status. If Jesus stopped being God for a second, it means he was never God to begin with. Yes, he lived as a true man on earth, but his divine nature was not lost or diminished in any way for any length of time. That's a subtle but still serious error to beware. Second, they get the cross wrong. Yes, as Jesus was paying for sins on the cross, he was separated from the, from the Father's loving kindness as he moved under the wrath of the Father. But Jesus, God the Son, was never ontologically separated from the Father, which just means the Trinity was not dissolved on the cross. Though paying for sins, he did not cease to be divine on the cross or afterward. In fact, it was his divinity on the cross that enabled him to pay for all of our sins and to suffer all of God's wrath on the cross. He had to be divine to do that. Otherwise, it's just a human sacrifice. Along these lines, third, they get the atonement wrong. Jesus fully accomplished atonement on the cross, not after and certainly not in hell. Yes, on the cross, scripture says Jesus was made sin. But not literally in the sense, Jesus did not become a sinner. Get that clear. He was treated as if he was a sinner, but he was not. He became a sin offering. He was treated like he was guilty of all of our sins, but he wasn't. That's the whole point. The the technical word for this is imputation, where all of our sins were credited to him, and he paid for them as if he had done them, although to be clear, he did not. And he had not. He was there as our perfect substitute. And being fully God, remaining fully God, he was able to pay for all of our sins on the cross, not afterward. Scripture never teaches Jesus was trampled by Satan and demons. That doesn't come anywhere from the Bible. And furthermore, that, how would that even pay for our sins? That's not, that's not the price of sin. That's not the penalty for sin. Satan was not the one needing payment, Right? It was God's justice that demanded payment, and Christ was paying the Father. He was propitiating the Father's wrath, satisfying the Father's wrath on the cross for our sins. That's the good news. That payment took place on the cross in full. Scripture is just conclusive that payment was made on the cross in full. John 19.30, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Whatever he was doing, it was done right then. Colossians 1.20, he made peace through the blood of his cross. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Romans 5.9, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood. And there's so many more. There's not one suggestion he suffered for our sins in hell, but rather on the cross. And he finished on the cross. Fourth, they get hell wrong, meaning Jesus never went to hell. You might wonder, and some have asked me, isn't that a part of the Apostles' Creed? Maybe you've read that before. And actually, no, it's not. 
that phrase, he descended into hell, was added to the Apostles' Creed in the 7th century. It came later. It wasn't part of the original Apostles' Creed. And furthermore, we don't care that much about creeds. What does the Bible say? That's our only question. And Scripture never says or suggests that Jesus went to Gehenna, hell, the place of punishment. Yes, there are a few verses which speak of Jesus going to Sheol, but these are references to him going to the grave, i.e. death. It's talking about his death. Now, I do believe that on the cross, Jesus suffered the equivalent of hell, which is what? It's God's wrath in full. That is true. But the Bible never teaches that Jesus physically, his spirit, went to Gehenna hell for three days in between the cross and the resurrection. That is not true. To the contrary, again, on the cross, he said, it is finished. That's why he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, not in three days. And then he said, when he finished his work, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Though he knew his his body was going to the grave, he fully expected his spirit would be readmitted into the Father's presence that very moment upon death. And that is where his spirit went until the resurrection. Now, I know that's a whole other question. Some of you are very curious about the concept of Jesus going to hell. So you want more? Come see me after. I'll give you the long article I have on it on Jesus not going to hell. But to wrap it up, fifthly and finally, they get the new birth wrong. It is not right to say Jesus was born again. Being born again, it's in scripture, John 3, for example, being born from above. That's how the Bible teaches us about regeneration, which is where God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. But that does not apply to Jesus. He never had a sinful heart, a sin nature, a heart of flesh that needed regeneration. Even when he was taking on our sins, remember, he never lost his perfect righteousness. That's the whole point. It was his perfect righteousness as the God-man that enabled him to suffer God's wrath, to, to swallow it all up, and to pay for sins and earn our forgiveness. So in brief, there's the answer to this question. I know it's a little, little involved, but nonetheless, you guys ask questions, I'll answer them. This false teaching in, in total, though, diminishes the person of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, as they all do. It basically turns Jesus into a mere man, It turns hell into the cross. It turns Satan into God who must be appeased for our sins. It gets Jesus wrong and the atonement wrong. And those are serious errors. I don't know why. People always feel the need to be novel and new about Jesus and the cross, come up with some new catchy teaching on Jesus and the cross. But don't bother and be discerning, especially when people are saying something you haven't heard before about Jesus and the cross. Now, speaking of, this person also asked if there are any other heresies we should be aware of. Uh, Yeah, like a million. (laughs) That could take forever to answer. So I'll tell you what really to worry about. Just worry about getting to know the truth as much as possible. That's all you got to do. Angel's sister for a while was a bank teller. And do you know how they trained bank tellers to identify counterfeit bills? They spend a little bit of time studying some counterfeits, but there's too many. There's too many variations of counterfeits. You can't study them all. So they spend the vast majority of their time studying the real thing. They spend hours studying real bills. That way, when anything different comes in, they'll spot the difference right away and be able to take it out. And you just do the same thing when it comes to Scripture. There's no limit to the amount of false teaching out there and variation. You can't study them all. Why bother? Instead, just keep pursuing the truth. Grow ever deeper in your knowledge of the truth. And that way, when something strange pops up, 
you'll at least be discerning enough to catch it. It'll catch your eye. You'll identify it. And Lord willing, be discerning to accept or reject it as you compare it to Scripture. Well, I think we can squeeze in just one more question here, so let's do so. Question number four. What does it mean for us to walk as Jesus walked? Specifically in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. What does it mean for us to walk as Jesus walked? It's actually another question we mostly answered last week. But I know that specifically this person wants to know what that phrase really means in 1 John 2, 6, to literally to walk as Jesus walked. What does that phrase mean? This person understands it's not a salvation issue, but an assurance issue, like John says in chapter 2, verse 5. By this we know that we are in him if we walk as he walked. In other words, one of the measuring sticks of a true believer is walking like Christ. But the question is, what does that mean? And that's a good question. What exactly does that look like? What do we do? How far do we take this? Does this mean we should gather 12 people, have them follow us around as we wander the hills of slow and be itinerant preachers? Or do we need to break bread too and feed 5,000 or or walk on water? Is that what it means? Probably obvious to you that's not what it means, but we want to know what John, the author, meant by that phrase in 1 John 2.6. And that comes by understanding how John uses this word walk, peripateo in Greek, in 1 John and in the context. And in this regard, it's actually not a hard one to figure out. John says right before this in 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light, meaning he's holy, and he's free from darkness, meaning sin and evil. John is painting a pretty basic metaphor. To walk in the light, therefore, means to walk according to God's holiness and righteousness. To walk in darkness is to obviously walk in sin and evil. God is light, but Jesus is the light too. And so in chapter 2, John connects the dots between walking in the light and walking in Christ Jesus. And they're the same thing. It means to live imitating the holiness, righteousness, and obedience of Christ. Right before in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, John connected the dots with our assurance being partly based on our obedience to obeying the commands of God. That's how Christ walked, in obedience. Right after in the context, verse 7 and following, he also connects our assurance with walking in love. That's also how Christ walked, loving one another. But verse 11, he says, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. In all this, John is simply stealing his language and this metaphor from Jesus himself. Jesus taught this first, John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. So Jesus first mixed the metaphors of light and darkness and following him. And they teach the same thing. So to answer the question specifically in the context to walk like Jesus means basically to live in the same holiness, righteousness, and obedience as Christ. In this regard, it's a a good reminder to end on. If you are truly in Christ, if you're a true disciple, you're going to look like him. You will walk like him. You will be holy like he is holy. You will love like he loved. You will speak like he speaks. Why? Not because you're obligated to, not because you have to, but because you want to. 
You've been born again into his image. You've been given his spirit. Therefore, you will walk like Jesus because it's in your new nature to do so. It's not some chore, the Christian life, the Christian walk, as it's often called. It's not a chore, but it should be your delight to be like him. And granted, we still stumble because we have a sinful flesh. Christ did not. But unlike before, now you wrestle and you strive to become more like Christ in this life. And so if that's you, you stumble, but you are pressing on to be like Christ. You are striving and to, to be like him. Well, be encouraged. God himself delights when we pursue Christ. And that's what our discipleship is all about. Christ said, pick up your cross and follow me to walk as he walked, to live in his ways. And that is what we must do. So continue to strive in following him. Well, that's going to do it for today. There actually were a few more questions, but we're out of time. We will get those next time. Wanted to save some extra time, though, for baptism and membership. So we're going to do that now. We'll save some more questions for next time. Let me pray, and we'll carry on. Lord God, we thank you for this little study in your word and the the opportunity to answer some questions from your people. All these questions are good, and we thank you more so that you revealed answers. Your word is true and full of truth for us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness in it, and may we grow in our knowledge of it in that we have the mind of Christ. And so we thank you for your word. Come down to us. Edify us in the truth. Keep us free from error. Humble us. We want to get it right, but we need your spirit and guidance. We all fall short, and we need your guidance in studying the word. So keep us humble, but yet open the door to the truth to us, Lord. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.